0: You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. If you want to find out more about this show, you can follow us on Instagram at Hell Exit. Today, we got a cool guest on the show. His name is Jason Strong. He's got an amazing story. Uh, Jason did 15 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Uh, in December 1999, the body of an unidentified woman was found beaten to death in a forest preserved near North Chicago. Ten days after the body was discovered, Jason was brought in for questioning, and police charged 24-year-old Jason with a first-degree murder and concealing a homicide. So we're going to hear his story about how he lived through that and how he was able to come out the other side. Uh, thank you, Jason.
1: Hey, nice to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. What's going on, Jason? So you're an exoneree. Yeah, I did uh, 15 and a half years in an Illinois prison for a crime I didn't commit. Two counts of first-degree wow. murder that I had nothing to do with. Wow.
0: Um, I just want to say I appreciate you guys on the show. John Huffington, it's a super special population. You know, someone who's been able to survive years of incarceration, especially when they're innocent, is just insane to to me and I'm sure most listeners.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... uh it's hard for people to grasp what it's really like you know it's seeing things on tv about prison doesn't give you a real understanding of what you go through having to live with that day in and day out and Mm -hmm. the environment that you're forced to live in and and learn to adapt to uh, it does a lot of different things to you but it's a common thing it's not as rare as some people might think
0: yeah i used to think it was super rare like uh i know there's a lot of tv shows and publicity about it but I was reading some statistics, and they were saying that there's what 30,000 people they estimate at any given time.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, so the numbers are different, but, um, but like, so the way I usually tell people is is right now we currently have about two point three million people in jails and prisons across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, if just one percent is wrong, that's twenty three thousand. Wow. Right, but we speculate that the margin of error is actually around eight to ten percent. So you're talking 180 to 230,000 people Jesus. that are potentially sitting in cages for something they didn't do. And to put that into perspective, I like to tell people you're like imagine you're at a basketball game, right and it's a packed arena. Imagine every single face in that arena being in prison for something they didn't do. Now imagine that times 10. Mm-hmm. You know when you see it as people's faces and not just a number, it gives you a whole different perspective
0: yeah it's totally insane even if you were even to see you know a hundred people and say all these people are innocent imagine that times 10 mm-hmm. yeah or times a hundred yeah so I guess uh let's get into your story
1: all right so uh basically in December of 99 um, Lake County police that's uh, Lake County Illinois uh, they found a unidentified woman's body and started an investigation didn't end up going anywhere uh, but they eventually found themselves knocking on my door. And I can explain that later um, when we dissect this more. But I just want to give you a rough overview. So they came, knocked on my door, arrested me at gunpoint. Very terrifying experience. You know, I'm kicking back with my girlfriend and her friend. We're having a few drinks and I get this knock at the door. It's about 11 o'clock at night. And I think it's just my buddy from down the way coming over. And I open the door. It's a bunch of cops with guns drawn. They push into my room, throw me down. They handcuff me. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? My girlfriend's freaking out. So, you know, we're all freaking out. We're like, what the fuck is going on? You know, and they take me down to the station and my nightmare begins. They begin the interrogation, which goes on all through the night and into the morning hours with threats and intimidation and mocking and. Uh, threatening to charge my girlfriend, threatening me with rape. I mean, just all kinds of various things, telling me they have evidence that I know doesn't exist. But by this point, you're so confused. You don't know what's real anymore. What made them think that it was you? So I think uh, it's a multitude of things. One, I can't prove this part, but uh, there was this one cop that had had it in for me. He'd been harassing me for a while. And he wanted me to be a snitch for him. And I told him over and over I don't know nothing. I don't know anything about what you're wanting to know. Just leave me alone. And he told me if I didn't cooperate with him, he would make my life a living hell. Two weeks later, I'm locked up for a murder I had nothing to do with. And he was the initiating officer that uh, arrested my co-defendant, who I didn't even know on the night in question. But that co-defendant saying like loud as fuck that it was me and he saw me do this and saw me do that. Well, years later... I mean, many years later, I found out when he recanted that the moment they got him into the police station, all they wanted to talk about was me. So this guy knew that I was his exit, right? Because mm-hmm. all they would say is, well, tell us about Jason Strong. What did he have to do with this? And, you know, what so was wait, his So wait, do you know the co-defendant? I didn't at the on the night in question. When the murder right. actually happened, I didn't even know this guy.
0: Don't even know him. They just started asking about him, uh, yeah, about so, you?
1: Right, because I think that cop wanted them to focus on me. I like I said, I can't uh, prove that that cop even until today. That. You don't know, for but for sure, that's but that's the one what thing you didn't that makes say. sense because he was the first one arrested uh, because he allegedly said something to an undercover cop, and uh, during the, his trip to the uh, police station, he was his hand was crushed in the car door, so he's clearly intimidated. But they said it was an accident. Mm-hmm. And then years later, he's talking about, you know, oh, they threatened me and intimidated me and all they wanted to talk about was Jason. So I, you know, gave him what they wanted. And so with that, they came and arrested me and my other co-defendant who I did know. Basically, that's how they got to me. Right. And then mm-hmm. they arrest me and they're showing me that guy's statements. They're showing me my other friend's statements. They're telling me they found uh, evidence in my van. They're telling me that my girlfriend's telling stories and they're going to charge her and they're just loading up all these lies to where I'm thinking like, what the fuck? I have no choice. You know, I, I've been They Yell at you. They laugh at you. They intimidate you until you break. You mm-hmm. know, when, when you get mad and you, cause they're not listening you're like, dude, fuck you. I didn't do this. That's proof that you're guilty. All right. Cause you're showing your anger. You're showing mm-hmm. your violence. Right. When you break down after many hours of this and it's, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning and you start crying and they say, well, that's proof of your guilt. Now you're showing remorse. And they just play this game with you until your mind is so fucked that you just break and say, okay, whatever y'all want. Yeah. You're just fatigued. Just at make that it point. stop. Yeah. And that's how that shit happens. It's not like people just go in and say, okay, I'll confess to something I didn't do. They break you down mm-hmm. and it's a tactic that they do. You yeah. Know? And it's really to get their answers and not just yours. Well, absolutely. They don't listen to anything you say. And, and that's the other thing that makes it so easy for uh, uh, innocent people to confess is when we go in there, we're thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. I want to cooperate. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're like, yeah, I'll talk to the cops. I, let's figure this out. I didn't do anything wrong. But it's not mm-hmm. till like about an hour into that. You start realizing, OK, this they're not my friends. This isn't going to work. They're not listening to me. This is fucked. I want a lawyer. And then they won't give you a lawyer. And it's like, well, wow. what the fuck, you know, they told me I couldn't afford a lawyer. So it basically le- leading me to believe that I'd signed my rights away when I said I would talk to them, mm-hmm. you know? And so you feel hopeless. You feel like you have no options, you know, and they're telling you're going to go to prison. You're going to be raped and you're going to be beaten. And, but Hey, if you just cooperate, you know, they'll help you get bail and, you know, be your friend and all. And it's like, they just play these mind games with you and it breaks you down. And when you, you're going throughout a whole night, you haven't had any sleep. On top of that, that just really uh, it takes its toll, man. Sleep deprivation is a major thing, mm-hmm. you know, and people don't realize that. So it's not like people just you know get arrested and say, "Oh, I did it," you know. It's it's a process that they do to break people down, and it happens to a lot of people. And it happens in various stages. Some people f- break faster than others, you know. Some people go for you know a whole day before they break. Some people break in a couple hours. It just depends, but. Mm-hmm. If you're not a career criminal, if you've never been through this kind of stuff, it's all new to you and it freaks you out. You're already confused and scared. Now they get to lie to you and threaten you and laugh at you and mock you. And, you know, it's like, fuck, man, where's the benefit or where's the protection for you in that situation? You're a lawyer, but you can't get one because they won't give you one. So you're alone facing these bullies, basically.
0: What was your life before this? Like, do you have any history of getting arrested? Uh, What was like growing up like?
1: I mean, I had minor uh, like misdemeanor stuff, you know, traffic violations, minor in possession of alcohol. You know, stupid bullshit that you know you get mm-hmm. in trouble as a kid. I grew up in some pretty crappy neighborhoods, and you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Now, before I was arrested, I wasn't a saint. You know, I partied a lot. I lived like a rock star. I, I you know, I drank, did a lot of drugs, worked in a porn shop. You mm-hmm. know, I wasn't you know a suit and tie lawyer or anything like that but of i never hurt anybody i wasn't a violent person i never did anything to, to cause harm to others it was just like i said I, this one cop had it in for me and i think that's what got that ball rolling because he wanted to make me pay a price for that and i don't even know why he started messing with me in the first place yeah i was gonna ask you that i was
0: like what drives that cop to pick you out of everybody to say hey i want you to snitch for me
1: i think he it's just went. because of where i worked and where i lived you know gotcha Or maybe it's because you know my other friend uh, Jason Johnson. You know, maybe he had a had something for him and saw that I hung out with him and you know tied us together in that way. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, I can't prove that like he orchestrated the whole thing, but that's the impression I get because it was right after he told me he'd make my life a living hell. Yeah, I mean, you've been thinking about this this. for
0: fifteen years. It's the only (laughs) thing that makes sense.
1: Exactly. You know, and he's the one that's arresting my co-defendant, who I don't know, and crushing his hand in the door and. You know, it's like, come on, man. This just doesn't feel right, you know? It's it's not a petty
0: charge. It's not a possession of cocaine. This is a double homicide? No, it was a murder of an
1: unidentified woman. Uh, But they got me for two counts of first degree murder because, you know, they word it in fancy ways. And that's another game they play. Instead of, you would think there would just be one count of murder because it's one victim. Mm-hmm. But they'll say, oh, well, it's a count of a first degree murder because you knowingly did this, knowing that it could do this. And then there's a count of first degree murder because you did this, knowing that it would do this. And, you know, they just word it differently, you
0: know, or to stack the charges. Mm-hmm. So what's going through your head? How long was the interrogation for initially?
1: Uh, it went on throughout the night. So I, I was arrested around 11 o'clock at night, got to the station, maybe, I don't know, eleven thirty, eleven forty-five, I guess. And it went all the way through the night into the wee hours of the morning, and I finally just broke. I don't know what time it was. Uh, It could have been, you know, three, four, five. Uh, All I know is by the time they were done and they finally left me alone, I was so exhausted that after everything I went through, I literally laid down on the floor in the interrogation room and went to sleep. Wow. That's how beat I was. I was just drained of all energy. How old were you at the time? 24. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, you're still fairly young.
0: So, at the end of it, do you confess or you just say, like, leave me the fuck alone,
1: whatever? No, I ended up confessing to the crime. Wow. And what's worse is, like, as soon as I did, like, police from Racine County up in Wisconsin came in right after that. And they're trying to get me to confess to a crime up there. And I'm just like, I fucking lost my shit. I'm like, fuck you, (laughs) man. Like, get the fuck away from me, you motherfuckers, right? Like, I didn't do any of this shit. Why y'all trying to pin another one on me? Like, Mm -hmm. I was fucking livid, man. But... They, I was their prime suspect for many years. They thought the crimes were connected because they were both Jane Doe's, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't until my case started to fall apart that they drifted away from me and realized that you know, I wasn't their guy. And th- actually, they solved their case, uh, I think, last year. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and there was actually similarities. Uh, it wasn't the same people, but there were similarities to who we believe actually killed the victim in my case. So it's very oh, wow. weird. Uh, I mean,
0: it's the same reason why they don't do torture because people just end up saying whatever they got to do to not get tortured.
1: Well, I mean, Illinois is not a stranger to that, though. I mean, uh, some people are familiar with the Burge cases. He was a detective. Uh, Gravaro was another one. But Burge was a detective that had uh, him and his cop buddies would take people to a black site and physically torture them until they confessed to crimes. Jesus. So Illinois uh, has a very fucked up history when it comes to wrongful convictions and false confessions. And I mean, I think one, uh, there was a person once that compared Illinois, uh, and it's record of false confessions to uh, Cooperstown uh, what Cooperstown is. to baseball is what mm. Illinois is to false confessions. And for those wow. that don't know, Cooperstown is the hall of fame for baseball. They're basically saying that Illinois is the hall of fame of false confessions. Wow. All right. So what happens the next day? Well, they processed me put me in uh, uh, jail, well, before they did that, actually, they uh, they took me to where the body was discovered, and of course, they said that I took them. But you know, I didn't know how to get there because wow. I never. But they uh, they drove me there. Basically, the way they did it was they would drive around and they'd say, "Does this look familiar?" I'm like, "No, I don't know," you know. And then they eventually end up at the place, and then they stop right where the body was, and they're like, "Does this look familiar?" And, and they say that you took them there. Exactly. But what's funny is they, there was a gas marker flag, right? That was in the ground. And I didn't know that's what it was. I just saw a mm-hmm. flag sticking up out of the ground because that's where they stopped. And they're like, what about this? And I'm like, I guess right there because <laughs> that's where they had a mm-hmm. flag. And it wasn't even anything to indicate the crime, but that's where they stopped. And that's where all the other cops were. So I just assumed that's what they were talking about. And they said, well, if he led us to the place. And it's like, what the fuck, man? But that's just, that's another game they play because, you know, it's your word against theirs. There's no uh, third unbiased party there watching or videotaping it to make sure that they're doing the right things. You know, if you go into court and say, well, they actually led me there. It's up to you to prove it, you know?
0: Yeah, and a cop's word in court is basically like
1: no one ever questions that at all. Right. Yeah. You have to really show that, you know, an obvious picture of them lying before anyone will believe it. I mean, lawyers, some lawyers don't even try. That was one of my problems. Uh, I had public defenders and they didn't even try to represent me. They basically did the state's job for them. They went into wow. the trial saying that my confession was true, but it wasn't me. It was my co-defendant that did it. Wow. I'm like, wow, I didn't do any of it. And we, well, oh, yeah, but we know what's best. This is the easier route. They just didn't want to try. Right. And then we had one, um, cop that was on the stand. She had posed as an undercover cop by my store. Cause remember I worked in porn, right? Mm-hmm. So she was posing as a, as a prostitute. And I tried to ask her not to do that around there thinking that's what she was really doing. Didn't not, didn't know she was a cop. And mm-hmm. you know, I said, look, I don't want to call the cops on you. You know, just can't you go somewhere else? I tried to look out for the person to be nice to him, Right. And they get on the stand and say, when she was posing as a prostitute, that I was threatening her and very mean and all this. And I'm telling my lawyers, like, why don't y'all correct this shit? Why don't you ask for the audio of her prostitution sting so we can prove she's lying? And they're like, oh, well, nobody's going to care if you threaten a prostitute. I'm like, dude, I'm charged with killing a woman. Mm-hmm. Of course they're going to fucking course. care. Not to mention it's a cop lying on the stand. And they never did anything with it.
0: I mean, that's a public defender for you. <laughs> exactly. What is the public defender incentive to help get their Like, what incentivizes them to really fight for the
1: case? Nothing, really. yeah. In fact, they even told me they didn't believe me, and that's the sad reality. I think public defenders periodically should have like a class that reinstalls in them why they do what they do, but also I think they need more financial backing because a lot of public defenders, they get jaded over time. They get stacks and stacks of cases every single day, and every single case just about lies to them and says, oh, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, Mm -hmm. so they hear that enough times that they don't believe anybody. Even when the person really is innocent. And the and sad that, part is that becomes is a that problem.
0: You need to have money to actually have a winning chance. And exactly. if you don't have money for a good attorney, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's In
1: crazy. fact, I told my family through the uh, year that I was waiting trial, I was like, man, uh, we need a real attorney. And they're like, well, you didn't do anything wrong. The public defenders will help you and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, no, I need a real fucking attorney. And they didn't, they, you know, like, well, we don't have the money, you know, it's hard hard to pull that kind of money together and blah, blah, blah. So I lost my case. And then my, my family's like, we need to get him a fucking attorney. (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, okay. Better late than never. Um, What was your
0: relationship like with your family prior
1: to this? I I had a good relationship with them. It's just, you know, they didn't have a lot of money to scrape together, you know? And I mean, my grandmother uh, that lived up North, she went in debt. My mom cashed in all her 401k shit. I mean, my mom didn't have a lot of money. She's a waitress, you know? Um, so we we didn't have a lot. And, but they finally scraped everything they could together and bought this one attorney. And we're at post-trial motions, which is in the same court, same prosecutor, judge, all that. The prosecutor literally walked up and told my attorney right in front of me, if he had you in trial, he'd be home already. Wow and i was just blown away like wow this guy knows this case is bullshit but wow. what are you going to do i was already convicted now i have to you know fight an even higher hurdle to prove my innocence
0: did your family
1: think you did it at all no no they know that's not me i mean yeah i've never been abusive to a woman in my life Fuck, i used to get in fights protecting women Yeah, you know, i used mm-hmm. to protect my mom from her dickhead second husband You know, so I mean, why would I grow up to be that person? I was raised by my mother. You know, the cops, they have a way of spinning things. The press has a way of spinning things and judges have their own biases and opinions. I mean, the judge told my family that they didn't know me. They were fooled by me and that I was really a predator. And I'm like, who the fuck are you, dude? You've known me for a fucking week yeah like what the fuck are you talking about and my it's like they have witnesses
0: saying a character witnesses saying that you've been a fucked up person all your life and they could see you doing this
1: yeah. but you know but my attorney's never brought a single character witness in my uh for my defense you know and that's what was fucked up to it's like okay they can bash me all fucking day in court but I don't get the chance to have somebody that comes in and says this isn't him This is, he's actually this kind of person what the fuck you know that's kind of fucked yeah. up
0: but what did your new attorney do
1: Uh, He filed a post-trial motion, and then we lost that. I got sentenced 46 years at 100%, got sent to prison, maximum security prison, and then we filed my direct appeal, and then we lost that, and then we filed a petition for leave to appeal to the Illinois State Supreme Court, lost that, and then he dumped me because we ran out of money. So then I had to figure out what to do next, and I became my own lawyer. And I filed well, my own brief. I filed a 75-page brief in the state courts for my post-conviction petition.
0: I know a lot of times like I got interviewed, John. He just kind of said, like, how hey, you went to prison. But, I mean, going to prison, depending on what camp you're in or whatever, can be traumatic in itself. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying experience.
1: You know, all you know about it, I mean, for me, I've never been, right? I've done overnight stints in a fucking drunk tank of a fucking mm-hmm. county jail, but I've never gone to prison. And all you know is what you see on TV, right? So the whole bus ride there, the whole way you're thinking, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm going to this horrible place where there are real murderers, rapists, and violent people. Am I going to be raped? Am I going to be murdered? Am I going to have to kill somebody in order to survive? These are terrifying thoughts. yeah. Yeah. And nobody wants to think that, especially an innocent person. You're like terrified, but you can't show that. You know, Mm -hmm. and and that's another weird thing that prison does is you learn that you can't show weakness. You can't cry in front of people. You can't show your fear. You have to suck it up and be, you know, stoic. And that's not always easy, but thankfully I I made it. I I count my blessings. I was never molested. I was never raped. Uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, violent altercations. You know, I stood my ground when I was tested, when I first got in and gained respect from being a man of my word and standing for myself and and over time, just got to to make friends, and people got to know who I was, and saw me as a stand-up guy. And the moment you start to shape yourself in there in a way that people will respect, then your problems aren't as big. You don't have mm-hmm. as many people looking to to cause you problems. But if you go the other route, if you just you know act scared and you try to shy away from everything, and you know you lie or you whatever, you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. You know. So, you know, being a stand-up guy and being someone that can be respected, uh that's a big thing in there. Respect is a big thing in prison. Yeah. But I met some great people. One of them, uh Jimmy Soto, who unfortunately is still locked up today. Uh I believe he's innocent. He's been locked mm-hmm. up for over 30 years now. Wow. But he knows the law, man, and he really helped me understand how to go about fighting my case. He taught me a lot, and I'll always be grateful for his friendship and many others in there. But he was really crucial for teaching me law. And so I started fighting my own case at that point.
0: So like when you go into prison, are you thinking that you're going to be in there for this whole time? Are you convicted that you're going to get out? Are you like 100% thinking you're getting out soon that the truth will come out?
1: Well, yeah, at first, you're still naive. You know, I mean, in the beginning, the whole process going up to trial, I was naive. You know, there was a part of me that was like, I need this a real attorney, but there was also a part of me that was like, I didn't do anything wrong, we'll figure it out. Because, you know, you're not raised thinking that the system is this flawed. You know, you don't realize how often wrongful convictions happen. Before I got arrested, I didn't know wrongful convictions was a major problem. You know, it's not something you hear about often. You hear about it in the movie once in a while, but that was about it.
0: Yeah. And when you it's know? in a movie, it's like this one guy who really is innocent, like in Shawshank Redemption, you know, right. they make a whole movie about it. It's not like a normal thing.
1: Exactly. But once wow. I was in there, I started reading newspaper articles. I read about Reuben Hurricane Carter and all these different things. And I'm just like, holy shit, this is a real problem. You know. Wow. Uh, but that also gave me hope because I understood that if this happens a lot more and there are people fighting for those people, then there are people out there to help. But nevertheless, you're still naive, and so like after I lost, I go I go to prison and I'm fighting on the direct appeal. There's a part of me that thinks, well, they'll fix what happened in the lower court. You know, it isn't until you get a couple smacks in the face that you're like, okay, this isn't going to go away anytime soon. I'm in for the long fucking fight, and that's when you really have to find out, you know, what's your attitude towards this case? What are you going to do? Are you going to lay down and accept it, or are you going to fight back? And I chose to fight back. I I chose a very warlike militaristic mindset to drive me forward. I looked at everything through the lens of war. I read books about war, Sun Tzu's Art of War, Churchill, Caesar. I read all these different kinds of books and looked at courtrooms as battlefields and, and everything that they were trying to do against me as pieces of their army that I had to take away and change or hmm. break down. And my people that were helping me, my family, my mom, my grandmother and others, they were my special forces. You know, and I was the general and I was trying to gain my army. And over oh, years so cool. it grew, you know, and that's how I fought. That's how I looked at it.
0: Was there like a law library there or are you just uh, getting, how are you getting like these books to study law?
1: Yeah. So uh, there was a law library. Uh, some stuff I got sent in, my grandmother was really good at uh, sending me books. So was my grandpa. You know, they kept a lot of files for me and stuff too. But uh, there was a law library. Uh, the problem with that though, is it was hard to get over there sometimes and in fact, I ended up never going back after I had to take them to court once I was in federal court and I was having a hearing because I was late filing my petition, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand what the rules were. And the reason I didn't is because it's maximum security, right? Shit happens in maximum security, right? I mean, it happens in all of them, but I mean, it's very common in yeah. the maximum security prison. You're going to have fights and violence all the right. time. It's all sorts of shit. So, we had had almost an entire year on lockdown, right? We spent wow. like the first half of it on lockdown, and then we came off for like a day and went right back on because now something else explain what else lockdown
0: happened. is to people that kind of don't get it.
1: Lockdown is you never leave your cell. All your meals are brought to your cell. You get one shower a week. You're handcuffed to and from. Uh, the only time you can go anywhere is on uh, like legal visits or uh, when you get to certain stages, you can go regular visits, but you're always handcuffed. And there's zero rec time? No rec time, no uh, library, no uh, wow. no church, no anything. So you might spend an entire, you know, three or four or five months without any of those privileges. Jesus. You know, and then if you get off and everybody's like all excited, like, oh, we're going to get off. We're going to go to the store. We're going to go to visits. And then you're right back on. And it's like, fuck, you know? Mm. So you, it really, it teaches you a lesson. Like last year when everybody was panicking and flipping out about you know, you grocery were stores were empty and, <laughs> and, you know, they couldn't find toilet paper. I'm like, I'm good. You know, cause prison taught me be fucking prepared, man. Stockpile your shit because you never know when something's going to happen and you can't have what you need.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that year we, we spent a, a good deal on lockdown. And what happens is the law library people will walk around the cell houses and ask if you need things because you can't go over there. So I told the lady that uh, walked around, I said, look, I got to file my federal habeas corpus petition. It's a petition in the federal court. Habeas corpus is uh, presenting the body or some Latin thing like that. But it's a way to challenge uh, a violation of your constitutional rights. The state courts didn't see. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, I was trying to file that. And she says, well, you have a year to file. Don't worry about it. So I took that to mean that I had a year to file. But what I didn't understand, because she didn't tell me and I didn't have access to the books to research it, was that you have a year minus time you spent filing your previous post-conviction petition. I didn't know that. So Mm. I ended up being late by like a month because I didn't have that knowledge. And so I had to argue in court why I was late and took her to court, and the judge just tore her apart. She was crying on the stand because— she didn't want to answer the questions. She wanted to play these games, and he wasn't having any of it. So basically, after that point, I could never go back to the law library because I knew she would be looking for any reason to give me a hard time. In fact, Jesus. the judge told me, though, if I had any problems, to let him know and he would take care of it. And they tried. They really did. When I got, So I had to go to Stateville, which is a whole other prison, uh, to go to federal court. Right after court was over, I was supposed to go all the way back to my home prison They lost my paperwork three times, keeping me in this shithole fucking roundhouse, which has been closed down for uh, unconstitutional uh, reasons because it was cruel and unusual punishment. But anyway, Mm. they kept me there longer than necessary because of... Describe how bad it was. uh, So the roundhouse, it was the last roundhouse in... Uh, in the country, and it's basically, it looks like a birdcage. It's
0: basically a prison that you hold inmates while they're going to trial?
1: Yeah, well, it was, uh, so Stateville is its own prison, but this was just one building on that prison ground, and it was uh, used for segregation as well as uh, people that are on court writs. Mm -hmm. But it was this round building like a birdcage. There's a guard tower in the middle, and then all the cells go around the outside. It was loud as fuck. Fuck, I mean, endlessly, 24-7, it's just loud. And it's like an echo chamber. And in fact, that was the reason they closed it down is because the volume levels could reach such heights of decibels that it was damaging to people's ears. It was cruel and unusual punishment. But it was also filthy. I mean, it was dirty as hell. There were roaches everywhere. You had to sleep with cotton in your ears to keep roaches from crawling into your ears. Get out of here. I'm not shitting you. There was uh, tech teams in there every day to break up fights or pull people out of cells. There was a guy that was killed like two cells away from me while I was there. It was just a horrible cell house to be in. And they kept me there longer than I needed to be because they kept losing my paperwork saying it was accidental until my lawyer just got fucking fed up. And was like, if you guys don't have my client on the next fucking bus out of here, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have to fucking file this shit with the courts. And so then I they finally get me out of there. And I get back to my home prison, and then they started fucking with my mail, right? My grandma was sending me some of my paperwork, and they said, oh, I can't have it because it's got uh, other people's names in it. I'm like, it's my case. My case involves other people. Like, what the fuck is y'all's problem? I was like, I don't want to have to report this to the federal court, but I will if I have to. And the judge already told me if I have any problems to let them know. They never gave me another problem after that. Uh So I had the uh, procedural issue, right? I was late. And because of that, I had to have a hearing, and the judge appointed me counsel. But he didn't just appoint me counsel. I love this judge. He's my favorite judge in the world. He (laughs) must have read my case. He knew something was wrong because he could have just—
0: Hang on. When you say that you did a 75-page
1: motion, uh that's handwritten, right? This is a different brief. The federal court was different from the first one I filed, but it was also just as long. But what I did Mm -hmm. is I handwrote it all and color-coded it. With detailed instructions and then sent it home to my grandmother and she typed it up following my instructions. Wow. And then I filed that.
0: When you're representing yourself, are people taking you seriously like in the courtroom?
1: Well, I never actually was in the court to file. I mean, to fight Mm -hmm. like an argue. I was just filing paperwork from prison. Filing paperwork from prison. Gotcha. But, you know, my first one that I filed, the judge didn't even read it. It was the same judge that convicted me. Wow. You know, so he basically said it was frivolous and without merit and didn't bother with it. Um, even though I had new evidence and everything in there, he just kind of whitewashed it and got rid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lost that. Then I filed a notice of appeal saying that I'm going to f- appeal this to the appellate court. That judge that just denied me threw away my notice of appeal and rewrote it mm-hmm. and gave me an attorney, even though I didn't ask for one. I was done with attorneys. I was ready to just fight this on my own. Yeah. And so that was really weird. Like, why would he do that? Judges don't do that shit. So he did that. And I was like, well, okay, maybe it's a good thing. I'll write it out. Mm -hmm. And then this guy drags my appeal out for three fucking years. And I'm just like, dude, I could have been past this stage already. What the fuck? Wow, You know, and I was getting very frustrated. And then uh, we lose and he dumps me and I'm on my own again. I'm like, so I wasted three fucking years. I was very upset about it. But it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because the moment he dumped me and I'm filing my next stage. Shortly after that, this news breaks in my case that after six years that I've been locked up, they finally identified the victim. Hmm. And I was just like blown away. I'm like, yes, that's fucking awesome, right? Because that helps us understand more about what were her circumstances. Who did she associate Mm -hmm. with? Where did she live? You know, maybe we can find out who really killed her.
0: How did they identify her six years later?
1: It was an accident. So I don't think Lake County ever really tried to identify her, to be honest with you. I can't prove that. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Of course. But remember early on, I told you that Racine County in Wisconsin had their own Jane Doe. Yep. So the investigator for them was still trying to work their case. And they stumbled upon the identification of the woman in my case. And they reported that to Lake County. And of course, Lake County didn't seem very happy about it. Nevertheless, the news broke. They figured out who this woman was. There was a missing person report as well as dental records to compare in a county, not very far from where my case was prior to my trial. Mm-hmm. But my defense attorneys didn't say nothing about it. The police never looked into it, never found it. it's like, if you were really searching who this person was, why didn't you stumble across that? If you had sent out all these flyers and data everywhere across the boards that you have for the police departments across the state, how come you never found that, right? Mm -hmm. That just seems odd to me. But nevertheless, six years later, we got that answer and it opened up a ton of information for us. And the police department from the county where she was from Very fucking helpful. Nice. They were more than helpful. They talked to my family. They gave us documents and information because they believed something else happened to her. They didn't believe it was me, but Lake County wouldn't even talk to them. They didn't even want to cooperate with them. Wow. basically what we discovered, um, nothing will ever be proven on this. Uh, they'll never actually go after the people that we believe did this, but who we believe is actually responsible for the crime is a mother daughter grifter team. That had a long history of taking advantage of elderly people and mentally handicapped people, and so on. Uh, they would extort them for their money and abuse them and things like that. And they came across this woman uh, because she was mentally handicapped. That was another thing that we discovered. Wow! And she was living on her own, but you know her parents kept tabs on her, and you know her bank accounts got money from the government because she was uh, handicapped. Handicapped. So they, these people got a hold of her somehow and took her away from her home. And the last time her family ever heard from her, keep in mind, the state's theory is me and my buddies grabbed this woman off the street and killed her and tortured her and killed her in one night, right? In December of 99. Mm-hmm. The last time her family ever heard from her was around April of 99 when she said, they don't want me to talk to you anymore. And they never heard from her again. Wow. And so that was a big thing. It's like, well, wait a minute. What happened for all that time? And for years, we had had theories that. She had been held longer because she had all these various injuries that looked like they were in different stages of healing. Turns out that was the case. Wow. You know, the thing that got me out of prison was because all this information coming out, I started to get this new legal team and I'll tell you about that in a minute too. Because of the new information we were finding, the attorney general's office who's involved because we're in federal court took interest and said, well, wait a minute, let's talk about this. And at, during that same time, Lake County's attorney, uh, state's attorney's office, got a new state's attorney. He got elected in part on my case saying that, you know, he wants to start investigating these claims of innocence that some of these people are having Hmm. and create an integrity unit. And he did. And he started to work with my attorneys. And so all these teams, these three teams, my attorneys, the state's attorney and the attorney general's office, got together, had a meeting and decided that they need to reinvestigate the whole case. Wow. And they're going to work together to do so. And so they retested everything. They looked at all the slides and evidence and statements. Each team got their own independent forensic pathologist to evaluate things. And all of those pathologists came back, all their findings peer-reviewed, and they all had the same conclusion. I couldn't have possibly committed this crime. There's no way. Yeah,
0: your DNA is not on the body. There's no other evidence other than the...
1: Not even that. There was no DNA. Uh, this wasn't even a DNA case. Most cases aren't DNA, because a lot of people think that, you know, that's like the bread and butter of mm-hmm. everything. Most cases don't have DNA. But that wasn't what saved me. What saved me was just basic science, right? The state said that the woman was picked up, tortured, killed, dumped the next day. Science showed us that in actuality, the day she was found... She hadn't died then. She had been dead for at least a week prior. Jesus, But decomposition wasn't bad enough to know that because it was winter. Gotcha. Right? And the injuries that led to her death were even further back than that. And all the other injuries indicated that she had actually been tortured and held for weeks, if not months. Wow. So their whole case fell apart.
0: And you guys believe that it's this drifter family?
1: Yeah, we believe it was them and this other guy, uh, Gonzalo Chimizo he had a lot of mental, uh, mental problems and they somehow convinced him to uh, lay down on some railroad tracks or something and get his arm chopped off Wow! and get money from the state. And then they sold the victim to him. He married her. And then they continued to extort them both. And then she ends up dead.
0: What a sick, wrong turn, fucked-up family. Right? That's crazy.
1: And then the only reason we know all of this is because they thought they got away with it because a year later after she's dead, I'm about to go to trial. They do it again. I'm guessing that this was their thinking, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know because you know, they're never going to say, but you know, I think they're looking at it and thinking, Holy shit. Nobody knows this woman is dead. They got a guy on trial for it. We got away with it. And her bank accounts are still open because nobody knows she's dead. Hmm. So they posed as her family and went into the bank to try to get access to her money. Wow. But the bank thankfully recognized that they were not her family and called the police. And that's how the missing person investigation started. So then the missing person investigation is going Chimizo, the guy with the one arm by this point is in a mental institution for attacking somebody. And he's deranged. He's like really mm-hmm. messed up in the head by this point. And so the police go to talk to him the whole time they're interviewing, he's constantly saying that she's dead and she was killed in December of 99. Wow. But all the ways he said she was dead didn't match anything they could find. He was inaccurate. And so they just chopped it up to him being crazy. Yeah. Keep in mind, during the interview, he was masturbating and playing with his feces in front of the police. Holy fuck. That's how fucked up in the head That's he was. That's
0: how crazy it was, wow. But he was
1: adamant that she was murdered, not missing, murdered. Mm-hmm. In December of 99. Now, who guesses that shit? Yeah. Even if you're crazy. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that guy is still in a mental institution to this day. He's He'll never stand trial. The mother of the daughter, the mother-daughter grifter team, um, she passed away. And then the daughter is still out there, but she's a career criminal. She's never going to be charged with anything. They would never get her to confess to anything. All she'd have to do is say, well, it wasn't me. It was my mom and this other dude. Wow. And who's going to prove her wrong? You know, when we deposed her... When we were trying to find information, all she said was, I don't know, to everything. What's your name? I don't know. How old are you? I don't know. When were you born? I don't know. Wow. You know, so she knows how to play the game because she's a career criminal. When she got up to go to the bathroom, she took her drink with her so that nobody could get her fingerprints. I mean, (laughs) she knows the game, you know? Jesus Christ. So nothing will ever happen, unfortunately. The victim's family and the victim will never have real justice. The only thing that occurred was more victims were created. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, I had a, an amazing team. So are you still with the
0: same attorney that took three years to follow that motion, or you got a different attorney again?
1: No, 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 no. So that's where that judge came in. So he was looking at my case, obviously. He had to have solved something, because mm-hmm. he could have just gave me anybody. But he called Tom Garrity personally. And Tom Garrity, he was the director of the Bloom Legal Clinic at Northwestern University. And I had been in touch with some people at the Center of Wrongful Convictions there for a while off the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane Rayley, a wonderful lady. Uh, she passed away, unfortunately, before I got out. But um, she was a wonderful, wonderful person. And she kind of kept my case alive in their books, even though they couldn't take me on at the time. And so it was kind of interesting that I'd already had this rapport started with people there. And then the judge reads my case and of all people, he calls Tom and asks him to look at my case, just for the procedural thing. Yeah. But I think he knew that Tom would look further. And he did. So Yeah, he knew. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Tom gets involved. And within the, like, I don't know, a couple of weeks to a month, you know, after talking to Jane and looking at everything, he's like, We're gonna take your case all the way. We believe you. Hmm. And that was just You know, amazing to me. I finally had... And what's their
0: incentive to do this? This is just a pro bono legal team?
1: That's just what they do. Northwestern is no different than uh, the Innocence Project in New York or the Innocence Project in California. That's what they do.
0: How do these people make a living? Like, do they do real cases as well or they...
1: Yeah, they do other work, but also they, you know, they get money from the college, I'm sure, and, and other things. So, gotcha. um, and, you know, and of course, whenever I got out, you know, I, uh, they handled my civil suit, which, you know, they get a, a portion of that as well, mm-hmm. but it was just the fact that I finally had lawyers that this was their focus and they believed in me, you know, and what stood out was Tom, whenever he talked to me, he wasn't telling me what the fucking do. He was asking me. What do you want me to know about your case? Hmm. What do you think we should be doing? He wanted my input. He, he was the first lawyer I ever had that actually gave a shit about what I thought or felt. Cool. And that meant the world to me.
0: Yeah, because you're obviously not in there just twiddling your thumbs. You're fucking reading everything as possible. You're studying law. You're submitting your own motions.
1: Exactly. And that's what he said. He's like, look, nobody knows your case better than you do. You know, you live with it every day. Mm-hmm. We're just now getting started. And but from there, my team just grew tremendously. I mean, Tom was a great leader. He had to lead numerous students, and then the students would leave, and new students would come in, and he had to keep you know teaching them. And three of the students that were there in the beginning, they graduated and moved on to law firms, and they don't even practice criminal law; they practice corporate law. Mm-hmm. But they were so attached to my case and believed in me so much. That when they went on to these law firms, they carried my case with them and got their law firms involved. Wow. So now I didn't just have Northwestern.
0: You got a whole bunch of firms.
1: Yeah. I had Cat and Mutch and Rosenman. I had Winston and Strawn. Those are two huge firms in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then we had this wonderful woman um, that came down from um, uh, the D.C. public defender's office, Maria Hawillo. She came down from there. And that's one of the best public defender's offices in the country, they say. Uh, and she came and joined our team. And we just had this huge fucking team now mm-hmm. that was fighting this. And it's like, how do you— Really going to war now? Yeah. I mean, I really had an army. And wow. and that got people listening. I finally started getting positive press. You know, the Chicago Tribune came out and interviewed me, did a great paper, uh, article about me, and everybody else followed suit. Uh, you know, we started getting uh, the attorney general's office and a new state's attorney to listen to us. You know, things started to change. It still took— Eight years after I got them, yeah. nevertheless, I finally had people that were working for me and cared about me. And that made all the difference in the world. And I had that judge. That judge was tremendous Mm -hmm. in helping me.
0: Because I always wonder, it's like, uh, yeah, I hear these stories about these people that are in prison that get these law firms to start rallying around them. But how does that happen? Like, is it people that are just writing letters to all these law firms telling their story? Like, yeah. how do you get picked up? By, you're just constantly being consistent.
1: What's the old saying? uh The squeaky wheel, or squeaky wheel gets to grease, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing, man. You, you got to think. There's uh, a sea of people writing letters to these people. Oh, they get thousands exactly. upon thousands of thinking. thousands they must get of letters. So many
0: letters all the time.
1: So the only way to do it is to outdo everybody else. Write and write and write. You can't just write one letter and hope they can get back to you. Of course. You got to just write and keep writing. Like for Northwestern, for example, I wrote them letters for years. And when I didn't get any of the responses I wanted, I started directing them towards specific people. Mm-hmm. And I had my grandmother call and I was sending them documents and they'd write me back and say, well, Okay, we got your documents. Thank you very much. We'll file them, but you don't need to send us anything else. And I'd still send them more documents. <laughs> of course, yeah. Because I'm like, no, that my case isn't over yet. I'm still fighting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is essentially you in the back of the sea waving your hands like, hey, I'm back here. Look at me Mm -hmm. and getting that attention.
0: What's crazy is that, you know, you seem like a pretty educated kid and someone that's able to retain information through a book. But imagine all these people that aren't good at reading and writing and they can't retain information when they pick up a book and they don't know what to do.
1: Exactly. And that is a big problem. But there are and it's hard. It's hard to trust people. Uh, with your information, but there are guys like Jimmy that I mentioned earlier, and others that are stand-up guys that will help those kind of people. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll help you figure out how to file your briefs and stuff. I filed some briefs for people before, nice. uh, and the only thing I ever really asked is that people be honest with me. Yeah, you know, I never gave a shit if they were guilty or innocent. If there was an injustice that happened in their case, I'd be happy to help them argue it. Mm-hmm. But you got to be honest with me. You know, I had a cellmate once that wanted me to help him with his case. I ended up getting him a lawyer, but then I stopped helping him because the whole time was like pulling teeth to get truthful information out of him because he'd be like, oh, well, no, this is how it happened. And I'd start to form the argument and I'd run into something. I'd be like, well, wait a minute. This is changing his story. Well, he would start changing stuff. And I'm like, dude, I don't care, man. Just be honest. Mm-hmm. You know that I can't help you if you lie to me. Yeah. So that kind of stuff rubs me wrong. You know, if you want my help, you got to be truthful. Of course. You know, don't lie to me because then I can't help you and I nor do I want to help you.
0: Yeah. You know. So what happens after you have this army of people fighting for you?
1: Well, as I said, it took another eight years, but uh, it it helped because, you know, they were willing to take the time to go and investigate things. They were willing to go down to Carpentersville and talk to those other police that were doing the missing persons. Uh, They were able to test information and get people to look at the evidence that you know none of my other attorneys ever tried to do and they were willing to they were able to get the state to listen but a lot of it also has to go to that judge too you know he was willing to give me break after break and keep my case open and allow me to to do the things that i needed in order to prove my case
0: yeah it wasn't just the job where he's just trying to get to the next one
1: exactly Uh, He's still a federal judge in Chicago, Matthew Kennelly, amazing guy. I got nothing but love and respect for him. And more judges need to be that way. Mm -hmm. And more cases should be handled in a way that when you have a conviction and questions start to arise later, more prosecutors and more attorney generals should be willing to reach across and say, hey, let's make sure we really did this right and didn't make a mistake. Rather than drag it out for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, let's figure it out because that helps them too, right? If they made a mistake and they own it from the beginning, they say, hey, well, we did the right thing and we're sorry this happened. Or if the guy's lying and he really is guilty, they can put it to rest and say, well, we worked with you. We proved it again. So Mm -hmm. you're done, you know, but they don't want to do that half the time. And that's a problem. You know, we take this adversarial idea so literally that we're not willing to work with each other. And that's not how this should work.
0: While you're in there, what are like your spirit, like, do you have spiritual beliefs that are keeping you going or is it just?
1: So I do have a spirituality towards me. I believe in uh, a higher power. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not dogmatic about it. I believe in the teachings of Jesus, the philosophies of Jesus, but I'm not dogmatic. I don't like, uh, I don't go to church. I don't subscribe to any particular way of being, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't always that way. And it wasn't done out of a necessity because I needed that to carry me. Um, I found it because I sought it out. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, uh, in the beginning it was anger. It was, you know, fuck you. How can you do this to me? I didn't do anything wrong. I'll show you. Right. So I was just pissed off and fighting. Right. And then over time I realized that I had to have more to drive me forward. I couldn't just be angry. And that's where my family came in and that hope that my, you know, working with my family and and having that back and forth with, of their love and my love and those things helped and building hope helped. And then later, yeah, faith came in and helped as well, but it came in increments, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: So, uh, what happens in your case where you end up getting out?
1: So, uh, well, I told you about the forensic pathologists, Mm -hmm. uh, earlier. So that was, uh, once that happened and all of our, all the findings came back and matched and it was, irrefutable that I couldn't have done this crime, the state didn't put up any objections and the federal court vacated my conviction. Wow. And so I was allowed to go home. And then uh, right after I got out, we filed a certificate of innocence in the state court. And about a year later, I finally got my certificate of innocence, uh, declaring me 100% innocent and scrubbing my record and everything.
0: So you're out you're done but there's still that certificate of innocent that says like it doesn't mean that you're just getting out because like the conviction got turned over this is saying that you were 100 innocent from
1: the beginning exactly yeah so when i first got out my conviction was vacated if they wanted to they could have retried me wow but they didn't they weren't opposing anything the state at that point already knew Mm -hmm. and same with when i went for my certificate of innocence the state didn't oppose it the only reason it took a year is because there had been questions and past uh, filings for certificates of innocence, mm-hmm. and so the judge wanted to be really certain of himself that he wasn't just passing on a, a case real, real quick and not really giving it attention. Yeah. So he wanted to see all the documents himself, and once he did, he was happy to sign the paper and, you know, grant me my certificate. What did it feel like getting out? I mean, that was an interesting day, man. Uh, I had already kind of had a feeling that I might be going home. Uh, because my attorneys told me that this might happen. Wow. Uh, that that was what we were expecting because of the response from the state and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was already kind of packing some stuff up just in case that happened and planning like who I would give certain things to and all that. Wow. Uh, but I was taking a break. I laid back to start watching TV. And it was funny because earlier that day, we had been on lockdown recently and the officer come around to unlock the doors. And I was like, oh, we're off lockdown. We're we going to the store. And he's like, well, you're not going nowhere. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what did I do? Mm-hmm. He's like, we can't have an innocent man running around with all these convicts. <laughs> and I was just like, what the fuck is he? Th- How does he know anything about any of this? Uh-huh. Like that kind of threw me off. Right. So I'm like, okay, that's weird. So anyway, later I'm laying on my bunk watching fucking TV and here comes that CO. He's like, strong, what the fuck you doing? Get off your ass, get your shit together. You're going home. I'm like, what the fuck? Like I jumped off that fucking bed. I'm throwing shit together so fucking fast. Wow. And it was a great feeling because like him, some of the other officers, lieutenants, all the fucking inmates around there, they were happy for me, man. That's people cool. Were,
0: I was wondering, I was like, yo, it's like when you get out, are people like happy for you? Like, yo, fuck that dude. Or like, what's the energy in
1: there? No, man, people were happy, man. In, in fact,
0: people were rooting for you to get out.
1: Even like a month after I was out, Jimmy wrote me and was like, dude, people are still fucking talking about you, man. You're an inspiration. That's so cool. Before I got to leave, you have to go to this place called the uh, Bureau of Identification. Mm-hmm. And that's where they sign all your last stuff out. And then you wait for the person to come pick you up. And so this officer was going to go and put me in this area where I can sit down and relax. and And this fucking one sergeant was just being a dick and was like, nope, fuck that. Put him over here. He ain't free yet. Wow. And he put me in this little fucking square shower where I had to stand for the next like three, four hours. Get out of here. Nope. I shit you not. And it was just his way of being a dick, <laughs> and, but he wasn't going to ruin my day. Right. He wasn't going to ruin my day. He's like, did you learn your lessons on it, dude? I ain't do anything wrong. I'm going home. Fuck you. Yeah. You know, like I, he wasn't going to ruin my day. That's cool. And so my mom comes up there to get me and she has three of my attorneys with her Mm-hmm and when i walk out of the door and i see my mom i broke down yeah you know i i cried like a little baby that's awesome all those years of fighting and you know being stoic and not showing emotion it all just came out wow and best day of my life
0: and where do you go like what's your first thing that you want to do
1: Well, we, uh, we walked across the street and talked to the Tribune. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we, uh, we left and we, um, there was a little diner in town that was like, you know, five minutes down the road. And so we went down there and I got me a bacon mushroom cheeseburger, (laughs) which was fucking awesome. And, uh, And I'm close with all of my attorneys still, Hmm. you know, like one of those guys, I ended up going to a bears game with once. That's cool. Uh, usually every year I go up to Chicago, we get the whole team together for a big dinner. That's so cool, man. You know, we stay in touch. That's amazing. All right. Well, what are you doing right
0: now? Like with your life, you know, what do you dedicate your time to?
1: Uh, well, I, so I have a big problem with, I try to, I try to do more than I can probably do sometimes, Mm -hmm. but, uh. Uh, I'm writing my book. Uh, it's been slow going, but I'm trying to get that done. I really am trying to uh, get involved in film and I want to get involved in business. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to own yeah. uh, many businesses. I don't actually want to operate them. I don't want to run them. I don't want to flip burgers or any of that. I just want to own you know places. Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm trying to learn now, how to like, invest in the right businesses and uh, real estate and things like that to try to diversify my portfolio and, and of course branch out uh, my sources of income cool uh because right now i just live off you know stock market investments and mm-hmm. you know if the market takes a tank i'm kind of fucked so yeah i want to diversify but ideally i really want to work with uh film or music mm-hmm. you know i get a lot of joy from playing music and uh i've always been a big film buff i started doing documentaries and i did a music show for a while and i, I worked with david elliott on uh proven innocent which uh unfortunately only lasted a season nice but i'm trying to get uh more involved with film stuff uh maybe do some acting in the future if possible
0: yeah we spoke about that that's my dream that's what i want to do eventually is just start making documentaries and films
1: yeah i'd really love to make a horror movie me too uh i'd love to work with like rob zombie or yeah uh, i was Giam- just gonna say that <laughs> yeah yeah or, Giam- like or, or something you know
0: yeah absolutely bro i appreciate you coming on the show jason uh it was an amazing story man it's so commendable i'm so glad that you're out and um you know i'd love to have you again sometime man
1: thank you man i appreciate it thanks for having me on let me know when
0: that book comes out absolutely thanks jason all right have a good one bro you too man this show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.